fiber in place. Welcome to this edition of Still in the Race. Is it too late to talk about Christmas? The cold sets in. It was cold, but there was only a slight breeze, so I set off on a northern loop. I turned to an episode of the daily podcast that I had missed. It was a discussion about the interconnections between trees and the forest and the work of Susan Samard. It brought me back to one of my favorite books that I read during 2020, The Hidden Lives of Trees, which I highly recommended. It's all part of the endless dichotomy where we are pushing deep into the galaxy in an endless quest to learn more, yet suddenly discover that we have a very limited understanding of the tree in our front yard. It's a book that I would encourage everyone to pick up. I promise that you will learn something new and never look at trees the same way again. At the half-mile mark, I could feel my toes freezing. I would reach out and dig my toes in with each stride, trying to keep them active. For several minutes, I was worried that it might limit my run. By the one-mile mark, they had started to warm up, and I continued with my journey. At two miles, I removed my gloves and started thinking about how far I was going to go. I could turn right at the brew pub and push through a fast three miles, or go straight into the heart of the city and add another mile. The light breeze pushed me into the city. I backed up the pace and rolled through two more miles. Coming back into the office to start a new year had a completely different feeling. All the people talked about was how different this year was, how they couldn't wait for things to return to normal. I understand those sentiments, and I share those feelings. I also look forward to sharing my days with family and friends, but I don't want to sit around waiting for the world to recover. So I realize that Christmas is over, but it felt like the time for a flashback, and although I have frequently broken away from the present to reflect on places and thoughts from the past, this felt like the time to not even pretend that I was trying to be current, and change gears to when my children were young. After all, 2020 taught us not to take the future for granted, and we all need to remember that there were days when life acted more like real life, and all the absurdities that went along with it. Man vs. Tree As we stumble through life, I find that the most humorous moments that manage to stand the touch of time are not at all funny when they are playing out in real time. More frequently, they are better described as painful, It takes time and space removed from the moment to gather some perspective and see events for what they are. Funny. Frequently, this is because they unfold at our expense. One such life moment came during a Thanksgiving week shortly after we had moved into a new house a couple of hours south from our hometown. I've always loved the Christmas season, in particular when the kids were young, because there was so much energy and anticipation in the air. At that phase of life, you are so confident that you will remember all the details of each and every year because they are so consuming while they are playing out. However, for most of us, over the years, the memories run together into an indistinguishable series of mental snapshots. They blend together into a collage that blurs the individual years because there is so much going on during that period of life. It makes them almost indistinguishable. Because of all the noise, it takes something exceptional, 
something unique to freeze a moment in time. And that year, there was a single night that carved out space in our family. Driving north out of Detroit, my commute home every evening was about an hour long, in heavy traffic that only thinned out the last few miles. That time of year, darkness closed in noticeably earlier every evening, making the days feel heavier because I frequently never saw the light of day. For those of us that have long since given up any winter hobbies, they are the times when we count down the days until the darkness finally starts to surrender to spring. I was tired, the job was stressful, and I knew that three young children were anxiously waiting at home to play with Dad. They are the years where sheer exhaustion only matches the joy. And on that particular late November evening, exhaustion was precisely where I was. I desperately needed an uneventful evening. A few days earlier, my wife had wanted to put up the Christmas tree from the moment that I took it off the top of the van. But after some quiet debate, out of the range of the kids' hearing, we agreed to wait until that weekend when we would have the time to enjoy the process. Or so I allowed myself to believe. When I finally reached home that night and dragged myself out of the car, I instantly realized that I had been set up. To be fair, even after our discussion, I can't imagine why I thought my wife wouldn't get to do what she wanted to do and put the tree up immediately. That was rule one in our relationship. And regardless of my frustration at that particular moment, it has been the general rule throughout our marriage. Because in the end, I really do just want to make her happy. And her requests are rarely unreasonable, particularly in this case. It was unrealistic to expect three young kids to remain patient while the Christmas tree stood in the garage taunting them. My wife had the baby on her hip, a problematic posture to try and debate with, and the two older kids were jumping up and down and screaming in the doorway. Mom said we could put up the tree when you got home. They grabbed my sleeve and pulled me inside as my wife proclaimed that it was all the kids' idea, of course without looking me in the eye. The ornaments had been brought up from the basement and placed in front of the couch, and the tree skirt was in place. All that was missing was the tree. It was 6.30 p.m. I was unhappy, and is my tendency, did a terrible job of hiding it. However, at the same time, I didn't want the kids to be disappointed after waiting all day and apparently being promised that we would have a tree up that night. It didn't feel like the appropriate time or place, or for that matter, season, to complain about being manipulated. I choked on a cold dinner as the rest of the family watched from the other room. They had already eaten to save time. I headed into the garage, where the tree was propped up against the far wall, silently awaiting my arrival. The first thing that set this Christmas apart was that this year's version of a tree was a sight to behold. We had just moved into a house with 16-foot ceilings, and our tree bore no resemblance to those you might see on one of the lighted lots scattered throughout the city. No, our tree was a 12-foot tree, and it looked like it belonged in a forest. Because it did. It was a real tree, not a decorative tree. And considering that it was still November, I was aware that I needed this tree to hold its needles for longer than was reasonable. So I dug through my pile of unorganized tools and pulled out the handsaw that I had lifted from my dad's collection, which, to be honest, was how I obtained most of my tools at that point in my life. I needed to make sure that it had a fresh cut so that it could absorb as much water as possible to keep it from drying out and dropping all of its needles in the house. Dragging the tree into the driveway, it quickly became apparent that the laws of physics were in play because our tree did not have a Christmas tree trunk. It had the trunk of a 12-foot tree. I squared off the bottom and began trying to hack off a couple of inches with my handsaw, which measured its last sharpening in terms of decades. Nevertheless, I would have eventually made it through if the blade had not bound up. I braced my leg against the trunk and gave a jerk. 
which successfully freed the handle, but only because it was no longer attached to the blade, which was now trapped without any means to extract it. That saw had survived for a generation, endured all types of misuse and abuse. All I was asking was for 60 more seconds of life. But at that moment, it was destined for the scrap heap, and my night was starting to fall apart. It was already past 7 p.m. Digging back through my tool pile, I grabbed a screwdriver and pliers, and after several minutes, managed to finally dislodge the blade from the tree trunk, but was no closer to getting the tree in the house. The family stood in the front window, the kids looking concerned, and my wife with that look that could clearly be interpreted as wondering what kind of man had she married, which was fair. I had a well-established reputation for mechanical ineptness. There was no repairing the blade. I had no backup plan, so it appeared that the last battle with the tree was over for the night. Or so I thought. By the time I reached the door with the bad news that I had thought was going to put an end to the night, my wife had already called the neighbor, who, being a real man, owned a chainsaw. She informed me that it would be over in a couple minutes to help me finish the job. Now I realized that if I owned a chainsaw, the end result was likely that I would eventually cut some part of my body off while using it for a job it clearly wasn't intended to tackle. Regardless, I couldn't take it at least a little bit personally that my wife needed to call in help to handle a Christmas tree. I could only hope that she was kind when she picked her words to describe my predicament. When my neighbor strolled into the garage, he looked at my tree and in a very judgmental voice, commented on both the size and how early we were putting it up, without allowing me any response. He proceeded to zip off the end of my tree in a matter of seconds, which I admit was rather impressive and made me think of how useful only my own chainsaw might be. I thanked him for his neighborly assistance as he assured me that it was no problem in a tone that clearly sounded as if he was wondering what kind of a man my wife had married. He then packed up and headed home with the task completed and the sawdust still lingering in the air. At least the humiliating part of the job was now behind me. All that remained was to fasten the tree stand on, lug it into the house, and my work would be done for the evening. I was happy to leave the decorating to marry the kids while I enjoyed a glass of wine and assumed the role of spectator. It was at that moment that I got a lesson in the manufacturing of stands for Christmas trees. It just makes good business sense. Produce millions of units in a standard size to fit 99% of the trees sold across the country. Unfortunately, we had just joined the 1% Club and were the proud owners of a tree most fitting for an eagle's nest, with no chance of fitting into my standard-sized tree stand. The kids were back at the front window watching the ongoing debacle, their opinions of their father now in free fall. Once again, I was for calling it a night, only to be greeted by my wife, who was still unfairly surrounded by the children, suggesting that I run into town and see if I could find a larger stand. It's important to note that we lived in what can best be described as a country subdivision on a winding road with approximately 20 homes about five miles from the edge of town and another 10 from the nearest box store that might have a stand capable of supporting our tree. If everything went perfect, this was going to consume a minimum of 30 minutes. I hopped into the car, slammed the door shut in my version of a passive-aggressive protest, and sped off into town, leaving no doubt about my state of mind. It was now 7.30 p.m. The box store was just like every other box store that I'd ever been in. Cavernous and full of employees that had little interest in helping me to find a tree stand designed to hold a tree that no one should buy. I finally found an associate willing to help, assuming that pointing to the far corner of the store and being instructed to search in the area near the fake tree display qualified as help. And so began my journey through 40 rows filled with goods that no one actually needs. 
which you have to stand in line to purchase because so many people believe that they need them for a fleeting moment in time. There were red tree stands, green tree stands, red and green tree stands, but they were all made of the same cheap plastic in the exact same size. None of them were designed for a tree better suited for logging. I was about to give up for the third time that evening when I noticed a young man assembling a giant blue display tree, which failed to resemble any tree found in an actual forest. He was at the front of the Christmas section, and there at the bottom next to his ladder was a stand large enough to hold a man-sized tree. It was likely intended for the display, but it was also possible that it was a new larger stand that they were just bringing out to the floor. Based on that tiny piece of rationalization, I scooped it up and headed to the front of the store. Naturally, there was no price, no UPC, no identification, so when I reached the front of the line, the teenage clerk with the green hair leaned back and asked the teenager with the red hair if she knew the code. Jake is working in that area, she explained, and he'll never find the right code. Just put in 1995 under miscellaneous. We only have one size, and they're all priced the same. Dutifully, my clerk rang the tree up and then looked at me as if she could not understand why I had not already paid and disappeared from her life. There was a part of me, however small, that felt momentarily guilty. It's not as if I had stolen anything. There was less than two dollars worth of plastic in the stand. But what about Jake? It sounded like he already had less than a stellar reputation, and based on the chaos around the display, I felt reasonably confident that he was about to spend his entire night trying to assemble a tree that had likely been tossed in the box the previous year without any thought, and most assuredly was missing several pieces. If he ever did manage to reassemble the tree, it would remain on its side until some bright employee devised a plan to secure it to a shelving unit because they no longer owned a large enough stand. Regardless, lingering guilt or not, I was on my way home with a stand that would allow me to quickly put an end to that fiasco of a night. Once back home, naturally, the tree was too tall to stand up in the garage, so I dragged it out into our driveway where cold rain mixed with snow had started to fall. I wrestled the tree up and set it in the stand, all while channeling my anger and frustration to get the job done. Laying on my back under a tree, I pulled it one direction, then the other, adjusting the hand screws, following my wife's motions as she stood in the front window. It took several attempts, but I finally had it straight enough, and she deemed it suitable to come in the house. More likely, she took pity on me and realized she had given me a task that was well beyond my capabilities. It was 8.15 p.m. Taking a tree that size into the house was clearly going to present challenges standard trees didn't. However, for the first time that evening, I had a plan, which, to be fair, involved little more than applying sheer force because I didn't have a better idea. It would have to be jammed through the door because physics revealed that the tree was twice as wide as the opening. As I fed it through the door, I planned on lifting the bottom so that I could take it from the small foyer up and over the open staircase to the left and then into the living room. It would be a challenge, but it was the only way that particular tree was going through that opening into the house. My wife could see that I was frustrated and herded the three children onto the couch where they would be safe, then opened the door for me as I lifted the tree, trying to keep it in a position where I could pick it over my head as soon as I moved through the doorway. It was obviously more than a one-person job and going to scrape against every wall, but if I could bring it in at the perfect angle, I might be able to pull it off and be done in a few minutes. I was still mad at the world, and at that moment, there was no way that I was going to lose what I thought was the final battle with that tree for the night. Once I hit the doorway, I realized that I would have to fit through the opening along with the tree, which should have been obvious, 
but there was no going back, and I felt the needles digging into my face as we squeezed through the opening. Just as I was losing momentum and gave one final heave, I unexpectedly found myself slamming against the door jam and stumbling sideways into the house. Rather than going up and over the staircase, I had been pulled straight down the hallway that led to the kitchen and found myself pinned against the wall between the tree and the staircase. My wife had decided that it looked like I needed help, so she grabbed a hold of the base and redirected it straight down the hallway. I was now in a narrow hallway with a tree that had no business being in the house, wedged in the far too small entrance with needles digging into every part of my body. I could hear the kids were squealing with delight now that the tree was finally inside. My new challenge in my comedy of errors was that I had no idea what to do next. I slid down the wall, trying to maneuver under the tree, every needle digging deeper, regardless of which direction I moved. Doing my best to get some leverage, I finally made my way into a crouch position. At that point, I was so far down the hallway that I had to work to turn the tree upside down so that I could somehow roll it over the railing onto the stairs. Once I managed to move it there, I climbed over the top of the tree, went up the stairs as far as I could, picked it up over the other railing, and let it drop into the living room. At that point, I was covered with a combination of sweat, blood, and tree sap, and had lousy mood oozing out of every pore. I grabbed hold of the tree at a single motion and stood it up in the corner next to our open balcony. Merry Christmas. My last duty was to string a single strand of lights so that we could officially bring it to life and then let the kids hang their favorite ornaments on the lower branches. At that point, I declared the night over, informing them that they could finish the process in the morning when I was at work. And, for the first time, my word carried the moment, and everyone got around for the evening. The baby sat on his seat in the floor, fascinated by the blinking lights on the tree, and we took the older two upstairs to tuck them in. I gave them each a kiss on the forehead, finally ending my debacle. That wasn't until I heard my wife call out that the tree had fallen over. It was 9 p.m. Intellectually, I knew that it was simply too large of a tree for any stand to support, and it seemed that there was more amusement than concern in her voice. However, the mood quickly shifted when her scream echoed through the house. It wasn't that the tree had fallen. It that it had fallen on the baby. I came running to the edge of the balcony, and all I could see was one tiny arm flailing as it stuck out from under the tree. My wife was downstairs in a second, yanking the tree and snatching the baby. I skipped every other step and made it down just in time to see our oldest son trip as he hit the top step and tumbled down in spectacular fashion that seemed to play out in slow motion until he slammed into the wall at the bottom. Our daughter, who was peering over the railing into the chaos below, burst into tears, wanting to know if her brothers were dead. My oldest son looked up at me. Am I still alive? I helped him to his feet, assured him that he was, while my wife checked over the baby, who appeared to be more fascinated than injured. I took our oldest back upstairs, his mood now shifting from being worried about being killed to how cool it was to fall down the steps. So much so that I worried the next fall might be intentional. I then scooped up our daughter and assured her that nights like this were perfectly normal. They happen in every family. And I tucked her back in for after a quick story. It would be years before she realized there was very little normal about our family. The night finally wrapped up with the older kids pretending to be in bed while lying on the floor and looking down through the spindles into the room below. I went out into the garage and found some fishing line, stood the tree back up, and tied it to the balcony. My wife had her doubts about my solution, but in a rare moment of triumph, one of my ideas actually worked. It would remain secured that way for the rest of the holiday season, without any more drama. It was 9.30 p.m. The next few weeks of the Christmas season settled down into our version of normal. 
which I only know because the rest of that year has blended into all the others. I know that the kids always loved decorating with their mother during the holidays, even if they frequently grew bored long before the task was finished. I know that many of our trees in future years were larger than they should have been, and some probably decorated better. I know that we shared many Christmases together as a family. Regardless, there's only one year that I remember every detail of putting the tree up. There's only one year in our house where the tree was the centerpiece of the Christmas story. There was only one tree that carved out its own unique place over all those years. So what do we say about the Christmas that just passed? It was unique from all others. And while many hope that it fades into the past, I can't help but feel that we need to remember it. My wife and I did not get to be with our children. We didn't get to be with our parents or friends. Our home was decorated with a very sad little tree that was less than two feet tall with lights that barely worked. We cannot get last year back, but we can use it as a reminder of what matters. Life is busy and stressful and has a bad habit of making our priorities for us if we aren't vigilant. So while I look forward to gathering in the future, I don't want to forget the lessons of the last year. I want to remember what's important. It was a painful three miles, which is the shortest distance that I can rationalize calling a run. Tonight, it was painful. It was hard. It was a struggle. I felt like a 60-year-old pretending that I was something I'm not. Young. That's where I am at emotionally. The end is near. My body is growing weary of being abused. My mind knows the truth, but it is losing the battle. The reality is that in my teens, I had three-mile runs that left me haggard and beaten and wondering if it was time to hang up my shoes. In my 20s, there were those mornings with too much beer the night before setting out. In my 30s, exhausted from three young children at home, I battled the miles and knew that I needed to take a break. My 40s brought the pressures of a challenging career, kids dragging me around to events until late in the evening, and struggling to work in those three miles. And they were ugly indeed. As my 50s came around, there was more time as the kids explored the ends of the earth but there were still those days when I could barely make it through the shortest of runs. Now in my 60s, there are times when I'm just tired. However, none of that's true. It's just another of the many hard runs that we all face. Being 60 is a cop-out. Most of the runs are good. Most days, it's part of who I am. Thanks for stopping by this edition of Still in the Race. If you would rather read than listen, Join us at stillintherace.com. Production and editing are care of Trey Jones. You can find him at treyjoneswriter.com. Additional editing and artwork, Astrid Burke. I look forward to next time when I hope to have something to say, but don't comment on it. <laughs>